Our scripture reading this morning is two passages from the New Testament, beginning with Romans chapter 11 at verse 33 and continuing into chapter 12, uh, verse 2, and then 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 10, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10 to chapter 4, verse 5, uh, starting with Romans 11 on page 1100 of your pew Bible. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And then 2 Timothy chapter 3 at verse 10 on page 1156 of your pew Bible. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you have learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth 
and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Let's pray. Father, we come here as your children this morning to sit at your feet and to learn from you. And we thank you, Lord, for the, uh, the incredible privilege we have to come here freely and uh, openly and in safety. We thank you for um, this, this building and um, those who have come before us in this church family to, um, uh, to make provision for this place. We thank you, Lord, for your scripture, for um, the words that, that you breathed to Paul and have recorded and are available to us even now. We pray that you will um, give us understanding where our minds are small, that you will um, create a hunger in us to learn this morning. We thank you for your servant Mark and the, um, the message that you have laid on his heart, and we just pray that you will um, uh, give him wisdom and uh, um, the ability to speak clearly and us uh, with ears to hear. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you, Kate. I hope you'll leave your Bibles open to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We'll spend uh, much of our time there this morning. I was uh, reminiscing with a friend recently about something my driver's training teacher told us now nearly 45 years ago. It's hard to believe, but that's what the numbers are. If my family's listening in, I'm aware of the great irony of the words that I'm about to share. Nevertheless, maybe this would sound familiar to you too. He said, with one exception, you can basically drive in inclement weather, be it on wet or snowy or even icy surfaces, as you normally would do on clear roads and in good conditions, with one exception. You can go fast. You can turn. You can even stop. But here's the one thing. You cannot and you must not attempt any combination of those three things. You cannot go fast and expect to turn. <laughs> you cannot go fast and expect to stop. If you do, you are sure to crash. Then, as if speaking to the aggressive male types among us, I don't know who that could have been, he added, and please remember, there is no dishonor in taking your foot off the accelerator. In fact, reducing your speed is the first step in getting you out of nearly every driving problem you'll ever encounter or at least you'll make it better and not worse than it would otherwise have been. <laughs> and he was right. As I was reflecting on last week's message and my own driving habits, I realized there may be a helpful parallel of sorts between my driving instructor's rules for driving in inclement weather, the Christian faith and life, and summarizing this sermon series. We might be biblical Christians who are serious about our faith and living consistently with it. We might be 
worldly or cultural Christians who try to straddle the fence between the life in Christ and our lives in the world. We might be Christians in name only who maybe show up a few times a year. And to be sure, most churches today will have all three types mingled together. However, and, and this is where the parallel breaks down a bit. We will not be biblical Christians and either of the other two. We just, we just won't. Which also means if we're either worldly cultural Christians or Christians in name only, then we cannot also be biblical Christians. Much like the drivers of cars on ice and snow, having to decide whether to drive safely, not too fast, not accelerating and turning, or not expecting to stop while doing either of the others, we must decide whether we'll be biblical Christians, or one of the other two, or none of the other two. Whole churches must also make this choice, and not only once, in 1944, for example. Congregations change. They turn over every five or ten years, which means we have to decide and affirm who we will be every five or ten years for the next five or ten years. Hence our series, Biblical Christians, Who Are We? A sermon series on biblical Christian identity, practice, and purpose. And if we intend to be a congregation of biblical Christians, comprising a biblical Christian church, the first biblical characteristic we'll embrace as a matter of first priority is that biblical Christians are grace-gifted Bible people. Now to be clear, for grace-gifted Bible people, the Bible becomes the lens through which we all agree to see, receive, and practice all aspects of our faith and order our lives, our families, and our relationships and and our ministries by as well. Imperfectly for sure, but still in some real and deliberate way. Not to understand and especially not to accept this is not to be either a biblical Christian or a biblical Christian church. And sadly, that's a choice being made by more and more individuals, by parents and whole families and by whole churches largely, it seems, because it's getting harder. And it is getting harder. And it will get even harder if I read my Bible correctly. Now, last Sunday, I spent a good chunk of time reviewing the Bible's own warnings and predictions, including the very words of Jesus that not only would the biblical Christian faith, life, and ministry always be challenging and require faith, it'll get incrementally harder as the time for Jesus' return and judgment approaches. So I won't do that again, but, but I do want to remind us of our central truth of the message. It's in your bulletins in your upper left-hand corner. Here it is. The 66 books of Christian scripture, Genesis to Revelation, illumined by the Holy Spirit and informed by church history forms the authoritative basis of our Christian faith and practice by God's sovereign and saving grace and therefore our identity in Christ. 
Once again today, I commit to you that there will be no singing in the conduct of this sermon. But once again, I have a song. It's a song that I heard for the first time as I made my way here this morning. But not only is it uplifting, it's also relevant to our theme this morning. So I just had to share it with you. The name of the song is Hymn of Heaven by Phil Wickham. Has anybody heard that song? I heard it for the first time this morning. It may be new. Is it a new one, Isela? Okay, very good. Hymn of Heaven by Phil Wickham, and the lyric goes like this. How I long to breathe the air of heaven, where pain is gone and mercy fills the streets, to look upon the one who bled to save me and walk with him for all eternity. Then the chorus or the refrain, there will be a day when all will bow before him. There will be a day when death will be no more. Standing face to face with he who died and rose again, holy, holy is the Lord. And every prayer we prayed in desperation, the songs of faith we sang through doubt and fear, in the end we'll see that it was worth it when he returns to wipe away our tears. There will be a day when all will bow before him. There will be a day when death will be no more. Standing face to face with the one who died and rose again, holy, holy is the Lord. And on that day, we join the resurrection and stand beside the heroes of the faith. With one voice, a thousand generations sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And on that day, we join the resurrection and stand beside the heroes of the faith. With one voice, a thousand generations sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain forever. He shall reign. And then the outro is good as well. So let it be today we shout the hymn of heaven with angels and the saints. We raise a mighty roar, glory to our God who gave us life beyond the grave. Holy, holy is the Lord. So let it be today we shout the hymn of heaven with angels and the saints. We raise a mighty roar, glory to our God who gave us life beyond the grave. Holy, holy is the Lord. Holy, holy is the Lord. Holy, holy is the Lord. Isn't that fantastic? Wow. First time this morning I heard that. Now, last Sunday, we looked at four essentials from the text of 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 1 through 15, which Eunice read for us last week. And I'd like to review them briefly here, and then I'd like to keep the same format to look at just a few others, three others. And the first thing we looked at is this, grace-gifted Bible people understand and accept. So, so every one of the, the points starts just that way. Grace-gifted Bible people understand and accept that to believe the Bible, to order our lives and ministries as best we can according to biblical principles. So we're believing the Bible and we're ordering our lives and ministries as best we can according to biblical principles and to follow its teachings as best we can understand them has always gone against the flow of fallen human nature, fallen human culture, and of fallen human perceptions of progress. This is not something new. 
This has always been the case. But I was less clear on this point last Sunday, so I'd like to take a few moments to explain because it does form the overall context from the, for the Holy Spirit's revelation here in 2 Timothy chapters 3 and 4. Recall what Eunice read last week from verses 1 and 9 that began, in the last days there will be times of difficulty. The NIV says there will be terrible times in the last days. And I think that's, that probably gets the tone of what Paul intended there in that first verse of chapter 3. And then Kate's reading this morning, verses 3 and 4 of chapter 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. From the fall of humanity into sin, until now, the trend of human nature the trend of human culture and the trend of human perceptions of progress have been and will continue to be away from God. The biblical revelation makes this very clear. When sin entered the world through Adam, death also entered the world along with all manner of disorder, disease, distress, and destruction. We can literally no longer not sin or please God on our own. We don't want to believe that, but the Bible clearly teaches it. And, and we'll cover this difficult reality in the next portion of our series. When we talk about what it means to be created in his image and what happened in the fall in chapter 3 of Genesis. But for now, and according to the Holy Spirit's revelation through Paul in his second letter to Timothy, grace-gifted people... Grace-gifted Bible people, I almost said grace-gifted people people, <laughs> would have been funny if I had actually done it, I probably so. Grace-gifted Bible people <laughs> understand and accept our role running against the flow of fallen human nature, against the flow of fallen human culture, and against the flow of fallen human perceptions of progress. There's a second thing that we looked at last week, and I'll be briefer on this one because we went into great detail last week. Grace-gifted Bible people who, grace-gifted Bible people also understand and accept that we've become the stewards of the biblical Christian faith and practice that we have received. We, we, we are stewards. There is a holy chain of custody that runs from the Old Testament law through the writings and the prophets, through the New Testament gospels, acts, letters, and the apocalypse, and through the centuries of gospel preaching, Bible teaching, right up to our time and place. And we have now become, Bethesda, the stewards of biblical Christianity. Not only us, of course, but we are part of that, or at least if we choose to be. That is our role. As we noted last Sunday, the question of the biblical Christian faith has never been, how many people can we gather together in one place and call it church? And though that seems to be the question driving much church out there today, the question of the biblical Christian faith has always been and will always be, how faithfully are we stewarding the biblical Christian gospel in our time and place? Are we handing it off faithfully to the next generation. 
The third thing that we saw last week in our text was that grace-gifted Bible people understand and accept that we will incur costs for our faith. And we will incur costs for the practice of our faith. Some of those costs will be small, some of them will be great, yet we do not and will not give up hope. In short, we continue to believe the Bible and not our circumstances. We continue to believe the Bible and do our best to apply its truths to both our doctrine, that is, what we believe and teach, and also to our practice, what we do and how we live. We do no, no one any good, best of all, or least of all, rather, ourselves and our loved ones, to soft-sell the Christian faith and life as a self-improvement or self-help or even a self-talk therapy course. We are not, and we must not become, moralistic therapeutic deists. Bethesda has always been comprised of grace-gifted Bible people, and we must choose to remain grace-gifted Bible people. Finally, the fourth thing that we looked at last week, grace-gifted Bible people understand and accept that the most good, the most right, the most true, and the most loving thing we could ever do, and, the most, and, and most of all in our own families, is to hand down our true and living biblical Christian faith to those Jesus entrusts to us. We saw that in verses 14 of chapter 3, and then also we looked back at chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, and saw how Timothy's mother and grandmother had passed on their, their new faith in Jesus to him, and then Paul came along and began, began to mentor him in the ministry. But this, this idea of handing down our faith to those Jesus entrusts us is perhaps the most difficult truth of all from our sermon last week and, and also from our sermon series. It's difficult because it puts the onus on each and every one of us biblical Christians, if we are, and not just the gospel preachers and not just the Bible teachers. But this is the very point at which we'll receive the most opposition certainly from without, but quite likely also from within, that handing down the biblical Christian faith, full of faith and hope without wavering, is the most good, most right, most true, and most loving thing we can do. Many, perhaps even most today, believe that's the least good, the least right, the least true, and the least loving thing we could do, because the most good, right, true, and loving thing we could do, according to them, is to believe whatever they believe and to live as they live, or at least, short of that, just leaving them alone would do. But we are indebted to the one who saves us to give a good testimony for the hope that is in us, if indeed we have persevered and preserved our hope in Jesus Christ. This is the biblical Christian line of succession, one person to the next, especially parents to children, and one generation to the next in the church. It's not only how the biblical Christian faith and life has survived through the centuries, it's how it thrives, wherever it thrives, even today. Truly, the one question for us here at Bethesda is this. Will we pass on the biblical Christian faith and life to those who will succeed us? Or will we allow this line of succession to die out? Will we be part of its resurgence 
or will we be part of putting it to bed? Now that was a pretty thorough review of last week's inaugural sermon in this series that will seek to answer from the Bible the question, who are we biblical Christians? And we can turn it around also to ask, though less directly, are we biblical Christians? Now, I'd like to turn your attention to the text, chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, beginning there with verse 16. And the first thing I want us to see here in these first couple of verses, 16 and 17, is this. Grace-gifted Bible people, we understand and accept that all Christian scripture has been breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the person of God in Christ Jesus may be complete, equipped for every good work. You'll notice that I basically just quoted those two verses. Let's look at them for just a moment. Verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God. Now, we have to remember the context here, and the context is a letter from the Apostle Paul by the Holy Spirit to young Pastor Timothy at the church at Ephesus. So when he says all scripture, he's not talking about all scripture that's out there by anybody in the world. He's talking about all Christian scripture, or we could even say all Hebrew and Christian scripture, because at first, in verses 10 through 14, certainly he's talking about the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. So when he refers back to the scriptures that were able to save, that had the power to save, that that were able to grow him up in the knowledge of God, that were passed on to him from his grandmother and his mother, certainly he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. But then he, he seems to make a turn. And at verse 16, he then makes this statement, all scripture is God breathed. And he's talking about all Christian scripture. So for sure that would be Genesis to Malachi in the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures. But, but it's, it's thoroughly possible that he was also aware, if not that he was writing scripture as he's sending this letter off to Timothy, but that there is other scripture. The gospels are, are, are being formed. Uh, the acts are being formed. Uh, these are contemporaries of the writers of the gospels and the acts. And these letters are going out to the churches. And, and he may well have had some sense. And it seems that he did. Because he would sometimes say, if you'll remember this, sometimes he would say, not I, but the Lord is saying this, right? And then other times he would say, well, not the Lord, but this is my best advice. Or maybe he didn't have a sense that the Holy Spirit was moving him to, to write this, but that he was giving his best advice. And so Paul was aware that scripture was being written. The canon had not been closed. And he was writing to young Pastor Timothy at the church of Ephesus, not only how to conduct his ministry, but how the people at Ephesus ought to live as biblical Christians. And so he says, all scripture, this is the word graphe in uh, Greek, it means scripture. All scripture is breathed out by God. Now we often say inspired. We've had an interesting couple of discussions uh, with the elders, and Neil has noted that that, well, if it's breathed out by God, it's expired. It's not inspired, it's, it's expired. It's, it's, it's breathed out, and that's exactly right. So I'm so glad that the more contemporary versions of the Bible have, have changed that now to, to actually 
give what the text says, which is God breathed. There's actually a word that's made up and you don't see it any place else in the Greek language, nowhere in any literature or anything, uh, and it, just, it means God breathed. All scripture is God breathed or breathed out by God, the ESV says, and profitable. It doesn't mean for sale. That means it, it, it benefits us. It is, beneficiary, it is beneficial for teaching. Now, we'll see this in just a minute, but I just want to give us a heads up. Um, and, and I first realized this at a Bible preaching conference. It was here in Winnipeg. It was our first or second year here. And I couldn't believe what I was hearing, but it changed my understanding of, of the role of preaching and teaching in the church. And the leader of the, the preaching conference said, and he, he was saying this kind of as a matter of course, as something that everybody knew, <laughs> except me apparently, um, and certainly those in his uh, area of ministry uh, would accept. And he said, I know that we're not supposed to preach the Bible. We're supposed to preach the gospel and teach the Bible. But our teaching must be biblical. And I thought, what? did he just say we're not supposed to preach the Bible? Where does he get that? Now, you know, having been saved and discipled and gone to seminary in a Southern Baptist context, I was like, don't preach the Bible. What are you talking about? Well, we see what he was talking about in this text. So just, just there's a flag. There's just a little caution flag that you ought to raise until we get through with this. Don't make any conclusions until I'm done, okay? But the scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. It's profitable, it's beneficial for reproof. Now there's this, a distinction here between reproof and correction. Reproof is um, finding fault with. Reproof is more like rebuke, it's sharper. It's like if you see somebody doing something they shouldn't be doing, you say, stop doing that. You shouldn't be doing that. that that's, that's rebuke. That's not correction. Correction is more like, let me show you how to do this better. But, but, it's, but it's profitable for rebuke. The Bible says don't do that, or the Bible says do that, start doing that, or stop doing that. Right? So that's reproof. For correction, we, we all know what that is. Uh, we, we need to be corrected. Uh, maybe we're not doing something wrong, but we're doing something right wrongly. So we can find in Scripture great benefit for correction and for training in righteousness. So if we're living our lives ordered according to the Scriptures, we are being trained in righteousness, how we ought to live. That's what righteousness is. Being right with God and being right in the world. So we are being trained as we expose ourselves to Scripture whether that's in our own reading or in, in our, in, on a Sunday morning or in a Sunday school or a Bible study class, um, it is beneficial to us. It is profitable to us for these purposes, teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. righteousness. That, and I like the way the NIV said this because it, it gets away from the, the, I don't think there's any intention here for gender specificity or any need for gender specificity. So I, I like how Kate's NIV, I think it was 2011, uh, read this. 
that the servant of God may be complete. I think that's exactly what the text means. I know Timothy was a pastor. And I know that Paul was an apostle. And there is the possibility that he was speaking to Timothy as a pastor. And so he's speaking about pastors so that the man of God may be complete. Um, But if that's the case, then this only applies to pastors. I don't think that's true. I also think it is true that that the scripture is profitable that the servant of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Yes and amen. Okay. So the first thing that we can take from this, I believe, is that the grace-gifted Bible people understand and accept that all Christian scripture has been breathed out by God, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the person of God in Christ Jesus may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's, that's basically verses 16 and 17. So number six, grace-gifted Bible people understand and accept that preaching the gospel, or in the text it says the word, preach the word, and teaching the Bible, there's my distinction, and teaching the Bible constitute the primary and unique work of the church. That is, nobody else is doing it. Nobody else can do it. Her leaders and her people, and this is very important, until Jesus comes. Okay, so let's look at it, verses 1 and 2 of 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul gets up a bit on his high horse, perhaps. Uh, These are sharp, serious words that he's giving to Timothy, the sharpest and most serious words that he ever writes to Timothy in two letters, without any question. Uh, One of the reasons, I believe, is because Paul's not going to be here long. He makes clear in verses 6 and following that his time with the executioner is approaching. And he won't be here to mentor Timothy any longer. There won't be a third letter to Timothy. There won't be a second church letter to the church at Ephesus. So Paul is, is being very direct, very clear, very even sharp, we might put it, with him. If you do nothing else, you must do this, is the, is the tone here. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, And by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So he's, he's saying basically two things here to Timothy. He's saying, first of all, preach the word. And he's saying, teach the Bible. Now, after I was saved and was discipled and went to seminary in a Southern Baptist conflict, uh, conflict uh, context, um, I would have taken from that if you had asked me, uh, you, you know, after I, you know, before I grew in the Word a whole lot, I would have said, preach the Word and preach the Bible are the same thing. They're synonymous with each other. Well, it turns out they're not. How do we know that? We know that because of the text. Back in chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is grafe, all grafe is profitable, or is breathed out by God and profitable. Here, preach the word is preach the logos. 
And I'm absolutely convinced, absolutely convinced that this is either preach Jesus as a matter of first priority or preach the gospel, at least preach the gospel. But it's, it's not merely teach the Bible. It's preach, proclaim, declare. The verb here is very strong. Herald is the, is the, is the verb. Karukso is the, is the Greek verb here. Preach the word is what the, what the sense is here. And so this is different than teaching the Bible. This is proclaiming the gospel or perhaps even proclaiming Jesus. I'd love it if it was proclaiming Jesus. That'd be cool. Um, but it is preach the logos, preach the word. And so I, I believe that it's true that grace-gifted Bible people understand and accept that the Christian life and ministry will be hard, but it also will be as, as a first priority, preaching the gospel and teaching the Bible, how we live, how we give testimony as Christians, how we raise our children, how we do any number of the things that we as Christians do. The Bible is full of instruction for such purpose. That's why it is an instrument in God's hand by the Holy Spirit of teaching his people how we should be, how we should live, how we should relate from the individual level to the church level until Jesus comes. Now, you may ask me, well, where does it say until Jesus comes? Well, I charge you in the presence of God and of, Jesus, of Christ Jesus. This is, this is all future. It's in the present tense. I'm not, I'm not making a grammatical statement here, but I'm saying it's looking to the future. Who is to judge the living and the dead? When is that happening? Sometime in the future. It's on its way. And by his appearing. Now, this could mean his first appearing. But it certainly includes his second appearing because he's just talking about coming to judge the living and the dead. So the church is doing the work of Christ until Christ returns and that of his kingdom. And how do we begin that and how do we do that best? Well, we start with preaching the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and re exhort with great patience and teaching. And we teach the Bible. And these two things, preaching the gospel, teaching the Bible, constitute the primary and unique work of the church. It's primary because it's first of, of first um, need, and, and it's unique because nobody else can do it. It's the work of the church, her leaders, and her people until Jesus comes. So then the, the seventh thing that I would have us to look at, and we're almost done, is that grace-gifted Bible people also understand and accept that the Christian life and ministry will be hard. We've already said that. It will be countercultural, even repugnant to many outside the church. But it will be, and it is, up to us to steward this faith, this gospel, this hope, this Bible's teachings until Jesus comes. Well, that sounds a lot like a couple of the others, doesn't it? Well, the problem is that Paul repeats himself, which means that we probably should 
listen every time it's repeated because it's, it's repeated in a different way. And in, in, in this time, he reminds us, verse 3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound, sound teaching. Remember what he said at verse 1 in chapter 3, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, or as the NIV says, there will be terrible times in the last days. He's, he's affirming the context above and beyond that we're going against the flow here. It's going to be hard. We're not soft-selling Christianity. We're making you aware of what's coming so that you can stand until the end. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But for you, or but you, your translation may say, as for you, but this is that su-day particle that means, in contrast to what I've just said, you do something in contrast or, or in contradiction or the opposite of that. This is what will be going on. But as for you, always be sober-minded. I love what the NIV says. Keep your head. <laughs> that's, that's a beautiful expression. Gets right at the point. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Until when? Until Jesus comes. Now, I know I didn't include this text, but I, 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 want, I just want to nail that plank down from verse 6 through verses, verse 8 to make sure that we understand that this is until Jesus comes. Paul says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He's coming. And we have work to do. Most of you will know that I had another career in what seems by now to have been another lifetime. And in many ways, it was another lifetime. And really, the only thing that keeps me from putting it that way without condition or caveat is to avoid people thinking that we teach reincarnation here, which we certainly do not. God's word written in Holy Scripture, this sacred book we call the Holy Bible and through which we believe God has spoken in a diverse, albeit surprising, and yet authoritative way to us and indeed to all humanity. And he teaches us in his word in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 26b through 28, Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the, by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. What you could not know is that I gave up that promising career both joyfully and with much sorrow. I was a United States Army military intelligence specialist and officer, a captain when I left, so I was just getting started in my career. 
And I literally went, this is hard to believe, but I literally went from people standing up when I walked into a room to, well, not. <laughs> I went from jumping out of airplanes pretty regularly and leading soldiers to do the same and, well, not. To be specific, I went from that to seminary and working part-time to, to, you know, to feed ourselves just over minimum wage, behind a hotel desk, checking people in and responding to their needs and complaints, and on the weekends, auditing the previous day's transactions. I was a weekend night auditor, for those of you who have worked at a hotel before. And then volunteering in a church, half asleep on Sunday mornings, because I went from my job to the, to the church. But I had become convinced that, in one very narrow sense, the YOLO folks, you know who they are? The YOLO folks? You only live once, YOLO, Y-O-L-O. Well, they're correct in one very narrow sense. We really do only live once. We don't adopt their customary conclusion, which is because we only live once, therefore go and do whatever you may want or even be whoever you might want because you've only got one chance at it and you might as well you know, do it with gusto. The biblical Christian conclusion from the Bible's teaching that we only have one life to live and then judgment is that we do our best to live our one life in a way that honors God's purposes for creating us. God's purposes for creating us. And we'll pick that up next week. And in a way that brings him glory and in a way that invests in his kingdom. I should quickly add that for those of us who've been bought by the blood of Jesus and who've been reborn by his spirit, we have no fear of Jesus' return or his judgment, or at least we shouldn't. On the cross, Jesus was judged for the sins of the whole world. That doesn't mean everyone in the whole world will be saved. Only those who receive by faith what he has done will be saved. But in addition to saving human beings, at the cross, God's work of redemption reconciles the whole world. The word here is cosmos, the entire creation, to himself. So when the Lord Jesus saved me on June 30th, 1991, and when he called me, in, called me uh, to gospel ministry in September 1992, just as clearly as I'm talking to you right now, Mark, I'm calling you out of the army, I had a, chance to make, I had a choice to make to go his way or to go mine. And to be sure, either choice would be costly in ways I couldn't have known, and it has been. But such is the case for all of us. And I'm not saying at all that if you're following Jesus, everyone will have to give up a dream job or any job at all. I am saying that following Jesus is costly. And to arrange our lives to avoid the costs simply means that we'll incur the cost of not following Jesus. In closing, I'd simply like to reiterate the question that animates our sermon series, Biblical Christians, who are we? And the first biblical answer is we are grace-gifted Bible people. And I hope you'll agree because we've got a lot of work to do. And we'll never accomplish any of it apart from an expectant faith and a sure hope in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.
Father, once again, we come to the end of a worship gathering where we both share in ministries of worship and word, song and scripture, prayer and fellowship. And I do pray, Lord, that your, your will for us, for Bethesda Church, for each of our families, for each individual will be fulfilled. Would you speak to each of us concerning your calling upon our lives? I do believe your word teaches and your spirit leads that every individual has a calling. And would you share that with us, each one, in a way that we can hear, in a way that we can respond in faith and hope in Jesus Christ? Yes, it will require faith, but as the song that I read earlier says, it, it will be worth it. And Lord, as we share together in communion, it sure seems strange to take this little cup and this little wafer prepackaged for us. It doesn't taste very good. Surely not what Jesus intended at the beginning when he broke that matzah and drank what well, almost certainly was wine. But we offer it, Lord, as a remembrance. Not merely a memorial, but a remembrance of what you have done for us and a recommitment to give a good testimony for the hope that is within us. Thank you for what you have done on our behalf at the cross, in the resurrection, in your life lived, tempted by all ways common to us, but without sin. You now intercede on our behalf to the Father, and you will come again. So our remembrance is also an expectant hope looking for you in your return. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you have, are we singing first? Good. Because um, that's what I was headed off to do. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> On the night in which he was betrayed, which was the Passover, Jesus shared a meal with his disciples. It's pretty clear from the text that it wasn't just the 12, but it says about 120 were gathered with them, and they, sh they were sharing a meal, and at some point along their way, he took bread and he broke it. 
And he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat it. And they did. Lord, what this exercise does for us during these days when we have these prepackaged elements is highlights the symbolic nature of what we are doing here. This is not your actual body and it's not your actual blood, nor is it anywhere else. As you spoke those words, you were still in your own body and you still had your own blood cursing through, coursing through your veins. Help us never to make an, uh, an idol even out of you or, or some aspect of you, but we can worship you as our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, for who you are. And we can therefore receive and be who you are creating us to be. We thank you for your broken body, for, for the sacrifice of the lashes and the humiliation and the punishment that you took on our behalf. Help us to know that we can be free of shame and guilt because you took all that upon yourself for us on the cross. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. The gospel accounts say then when the supper was finished, he took the cup that was there with, we suppose was wine. I'm not making a statement there, I'm just trying to get the text right. And he said, this is the blood of the new covenant, speaking of his own blood, by which he would make a new covenant, a lasting covenant, an everlasting covenant between God and humanity and, you know, if we read 2 Corinthians chapter 3 with his, chapter 5 rather, with his whole creation, the cosmos, reconciling the world to himself. And he said, drink it, and, and they did. Finally, Lord, we... Thank you for your shed blood by which all of our unrighteousness is cleansed. If we'll simply believe and follow. If we'll simply place our hope in you and none other. If we'll confess our sins. acknowledge who you are, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. What a, what a wonderful state of being that will be. It's begun, for sure, already, but we look forward to that time when we have no more taint or 
effect of sin on us, no more tears, no more pain, no more mourning. All of that is behind us because of you. Thank you for what you have done. Thank you for who you are and who you are making us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like for us to hear, as we're leaving this place, words from Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which are idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, passionate, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanks, thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. May we live these lives as we leave this place this week. I'll see you all next week. God bless you. Amen.